we need everyone to make change. I mean, it can't be just black teachers trying to make change for black students because we live in a world that's made up of everybody. As long as our allies are coming with true intent and a real heart to change the direction of where education is going as a whole, those are the people that we want. Those are the people who can have a great impact for us. From EdPost, it's Across Colors, a new show about how parents and educators from across the country are pushing to make schools better and more equal places for children to learn and grow. I'm Tansy Vega, your host. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, tensions between the teachers' union and the school board have been ongoing for months. But an acrimonious teacher strike and tight budgets are not the only things putting pressure on the school system there. Some activists and parents of color say they feel like the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers has overlooked their concerns. Joining me now to talk about this is Charles Luter, a middle school special education teacher in North Minneapolis. Charles, welcome to the show. Good morning and thanks for having me. So let's talk about the big picture here. What do you see as some of the biggest points of tension between the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and black and brown parents and families who are on the ground in Minneapolis? I think the biggest from what I've seen as of late is just not enough attention being paid to the needs of our students who struggle the most, our families who need the most support. and. We didn't see anything through the negotiations, the strike or anything that really moved the needle towards a more supportive way to support our most needy students. One of those things being supporting teachers of color and having students see people that represent them in order to encourage and motivate them to to work harder and be more successful as they attend school. Tell me a little bit about what you see on your day to day. I mean, you're dealing with the population that is. often underfunded, often marginalized students, I imagine many of them of color, many of them low income that require special education. What is the reality that you see on the ground every day? It's difficult. Like currently, if we take in the fallout of COVID and we take the financial strain on families, we take on the mental health issues, if we consider special education on top of or included with mental health issues, We need to focus on the entire child and we need to bring resources together from the community. We need to do a better job with holding the district accountable to resources that they're providing for our families and for our students. Um, It's it's really difficult. Students have been set back. So how do we now look at a student who was struggling before COVID and now the student has missed for whatever reason additional time? outside of COVID, distance learning was not a success. Um, There was no way to hold students and families accountable for making sure that the student logged in every day and completed work and things like that. So it's really difficult. We need to find a way for the district to be more supportive and intentional on the supports that they're providing. We need to build better resources and collaborations with community partners to bring them in to work to make sure that our students are more well-rounded. And I'm thinking like mentorships and internships to prepare our students for real-world events and real-world opportunities 
So it's difficult. The resources and buildings just aren't there. Having a, an acrimonious teacher strike and all these tensions during, you know, what's an ongoing global pandemic, and you mentioned remote learning, students with special needs. I mean, this is just a real, real complicated situation. And it's not over yet. And some of the recommendations have been to desegregate some of the schools in Minneapolis, right? And that, that some people have said, well, this is one way that we can fix some of what has happened. How are those efforts, in your opinion, going, Charles? I don't think they're going well at all. I don't see it. I don't see a real change in how we've been operating. And it's and it's twofold. It's a union pressing for funding from the state. It's the district. We the district and the union first. We need we needed new leadership on both sides. In my opinion, we needed new district leadership. We also needed new union leadership because the tension between the two had got so acrimonious that they couldn't agree. And we need to collaborate with common goal in mind, which is to try to save these kids' lives and point them in a direction to be successful. Do you think that everybody shares that goal, though, at this point? I mean, it sounds like a great goal. It sounds like something we all want to do that would be obvious. But but what is preventing that from happening at this point? Is it money, Charles? Is it the lack of political will? Like, what is that? I think it's a combination of both. I think for some, it was their personal aspirations, maybe. For others, it was not a priority. And again, I, I, I like priority and I like intentionality. We have to prioritize our kids and then we have to be intentional about what we're doing to support them. And we can't continue to make excuses about funding's not there. Minneapolis just closed out with, I think it was a $7 million surplus. And we're still not talking about properly funding education. So for me, I think if the union and the district leadership is working together collaboratively. Then we go to the state together collaboratively as a bigger force and we ask questions about financing and support and properly funding education, public education, because it's not happening. And without the proper funding, resources won't be made available. We as teachers will continue to struggle to find ways to support, encourage, motivate, love our kids every single day shorthanded. We don't have enough support staff currently because the job just doesn't pay. They can go to other districts outside of Minneapolis and make more money doing the exact same job. So we just need to 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 commit, intentionally commit to our students and provide them with what they need to be successful, which is more resources, which is people that who look like them, who can who can understand and show true empathy for their day to day lives. So when our students come in and they're frustrated because they didn't sleep because of whatever is going on in their home. We're empathetic enough to understand that we need to we we need to kind of hug this child up and make sure that they're mentally prepared. They're relaxed. They feel good. They're in a good space to learn. Then we can educate them. But we need to be able to deal with all of those other pieces in order for the student's mind to relax and they can focus on what the on what we're asking them to do. Was the strike worth it, Charles? No, it was not. We gave up. We ended up working school until June 24th, which seemed more or less like a punishment for teachers. 
the students, some didn't show up after the 8th of June when they would have initially been let out of school. Families had plans for the summer. Teachers had paid for trips for their families over the summer. So that whole extending the school year piece, although days and times needed to be made up, I feel like there could have been a better way of handling that. Charles, there was a piece in MinPost, and you were one of the co-authors of the piece. In that piece, the group calls the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers or the MFT Union leadership racist. And there's a quote in the piece where it says, teachers of color were lied to throughout the strike to keep our voices and use our bodies for public fodder. What does that mean for those uh, folks who haven't or hadn't been following um, the tensions there on the ground? One of the biggest points that was used to, I'm going to use the word recruit, educators across the board, educators of color and, and everyone else, was the idea that protections for teachers of color, things were going to be different for teachers of color who are newer to the district, who don't have the seniority, but are having a positive impact on the students and buildings every day. We didn't see any of that throughout the contract negotiations or, but let me just back up, leading into the strike, that was one of the things that was really put out there as a priority from our union, which got a lot of, of, of teachers of color to agree to go on strike. So we were kind of baited. It was kind of almost like a bait and switch. We're going to prioritize protections for teachers of color. We're going to do all of these things. And then as the contract negotiations started to happen, less conversations were happening. We were also kept in the dark. We didn't know day to day what those conversations were about and didn't have input and kind of making sure that those important topics that we agreed to go on strike for, we had a 97% uh, agreement amongst members of the union to go on strike. And a lot of that was because teachers of color felt like this is our opportunity to solidify ourselves, protect our jobs, and continue to do the work that we're doing. Um, so it, it, it felt a little bit like usury to hear all of the things that were promised that we will be fighting for, before the strike, we agreed to go on strike, and then very little of those things actually came to fruition in, at the end. I want to talk a little bit about what the union has said about the results of the strike. In March, the New York Times reported on the aftermath of the Minneapolis teachers' strike, and they said, according to the New York Times, that the at the time, there were very few details of the agreement that had been released um, between the student, the, the union, and um, the board. But they did say that the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and Educational Support Professionals issued a statement saying, quote, It is important to note that major gains were made on pay for education support professionals, protections for educators of color, class size caps, and mental health supports. Did that not happen? I don't think it happened. I've spoken with coworkers who have been in a district for close to 30 years. And when it came down to their pay increase, their pay increase is 34 cents based on a scale that was put together during the strike. So some of our most seasoned people who've committed their lives to working in this industry and working in this, in, in this, in this community were slighted 
um, most of the gains are for new people coming in to the district who have no experience and have proven themselves as capable to handle what we see every day. So for some people, I'm not going to say no one gained, but for the student facing people, the, the, the staff who come in and they're working face to face with students, their gains have seemed to be minimal. And this is across. I've spoken with several support staff people and they're frustrated as well because they're not seeing on their paycheck any sizable gains at all. Let's look ahead because sometimes that's all we can do, right? What are some of the areas where you see black and brown teachers and parents coming together? Where do black and brown parents and educators of color fall on making things change for the future? And are white allies part of that conversation? We need everyone to make change. I mean, it can't be just black teachers trying to make change for black students because we live in a world that's made up of everybody. So allies, as long as our allies are coming with true intent and a real heart to to change the direction of where education is going as a whole, those are the people that we want. Those are the people who can have a great impact for us. Allies are allies. We as people of color need to take more responsibility and 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 in how we push for what we feel our students need. We need to work with our parents so that our parents understand um, the bigger picture. You know, parents are focused on their child and their child's behavior, their child's success, their child's educational experience, which which we can understand. But when parents and teachers and schools share information where parents are fully aware of the bigger pictures, the workings of a school, the workings of the district and how sometimes we're limited in what we can do and what services we can provide in a particular building based off of staffing and things like that. I think then we can start looking and talking about a common goal. I think we need to create more opportunities for to hear parents out. And, and hear their concerns and then in some way address those concerns and then make our parents allies instead of having some parents super frustrated with the school based off of either their, their child's experience or their feelings about the district as a whole. What are your expectations in terms of leadership, in terms of moving things forward, like you said, um, you wanted to see happen for, for the kids in your district? I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful and that change can be made. What is the union going to do? Even though we did not win election seats, we raised some really good concerns. We raised issues that I hope are not just dropped because of who presented them. And I hope that that current leadership, um, although we didn't agree on much, did hear our concerns. And we're speaking for the people. We 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 did a lot of phone banking. We did a lot of talking to teachers and families to, to kind of gauge where their concerns are. And I'm hopeful that those type of things are heard. I'm hopeful that we'll get leadership that is truly focused on educating students and not fixing budgets or positioning for running for other offices or other jobs or anything like that. And just be focused on reconstructing a positive 
district in here in Minneapolis. Charles Luter is a middle school special education teacher in North Minneapolis. Charles, thanks so much for joining us and telling us your thoughts on what's happening on the ground there. Thanks for having me. Again, I truly appreciate this opportunity to speak. And our series wouldn't be complete without covering housing. And for that conversation, we'll go to an unlikely place, San Antonio, where we'll take a walk through the history of redlining and how it's affected San Antonio schools. I want San Antonio to be a place where a family can just go to their neighborhood school or or a charter school nearby and they know that their kid will get a great education. This is a podcast from EdPost. I'm your host, Tanzina Vega. Our show is produced by Maureen Kelleher. Our sound editor is Iklas Salim. And music is by Ayana Jacobs-L. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.